I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as we go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. On today's episode of the Executives Exchange, Julie Smolianski, CEO of Lifeway Foods, shares her journey of becoming the youngest woman CEO of a publicly traded company at just 27. It's a journey that taught her many lessons along the way about the power of family, well-being, and staying true to who you are. Hear more about Julie's story and how she finds meaning outside of work to contribute to a safer, more equitable society. Hi, Julie. Hi, Margaret. How are you this morning? Afternoon for me, morning for you. Yeah, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Good. We are experiencing a slight thaw here in Chicago. Snow's starting to melt a little bit. It's funny. In true Chicago fashion, people are like out in shorts, which is, as you know, it hits like 45 and suddenly we're like, oh, it's summer. Absolutely. I mean, take every little bit of that good weather and vitamin D and uh, go get it. I know. Sunshine. Well, and I know that's going to be part of what we're talking about is just overall health and well-being and all of that. There's so much we want to talk about. So let's just get into it. Let's do it. So um, let's start not completely at the beginning, but you know, kind of early on. So your initial career path was psychology and social work, which was also mine. Um, and it eventually led to your first job as a crisis counselor. Mine was, I was an intake counselor in a mental health hospital. Um, so it started out there and we both have pivoted since then. Um, but I think everyone learns powerful lessons from those first jobs. And I know particularly for you that still apply today, you know, even when you're doing something completely different. So thinking about those early days and the initial career experience that you had, what were some of those lessons for you? What were some of the things that you learned then that are still with you today? Yeah, you know, I think that learning about compassion and empathy and um, having a real sense of what other people are going through, what our communities are going through, you know, to truly walk in their shoes in whichever way that you can try to do that. And, you know, we could never really do that completely and understand what somebody else's journey has been, but we can try to put ourselves in their shoes. And, um, you know, I think I was able to really experience some of the harshest, most challenging, um, experiences. And it gave me a huge sense of empathy as I, uh, took a more corporate executive role, you know, and, and, uh, you know, eventually as CEO of my family's business, but, you know, the, the, the big understanding in terms of how I, I lead, how we um, collaborate with other businesses or organizations, um, the things that kind of give us our moral compass, the, those values and ideas. I think it originally stemmed from some of that experience I had learning how to navigate crisis. Of course, you know, my clients were in major crisis and major trauma. And, uh, you know, it's one thing to read about it in the newspaper or watch it on your news. It's another thing to truly like be in, um, and, and sit with somebody and bear witness and hold space and, and give them a place to have their pain. Um, and so, yeah, that, that has really, uh, carried me through my, my whole life, like knowing, knowing, um, that, 
others' experiences are very different and that I have a, a coming from a place of privilege, have an opportunity to um, help lead that conversation, open it up to other people. You know, I have a platform of some sort and I can bring others into that. So, you know, I, I would, I, I think that psychology is a great major for anybody to have, especially if you're unsure of what you really want to do, because it's something that you'll use your whole life, you know, learning how to interact with people, learning how to hold space for people. Those are, you know, priceless um, skills that you can never go wrong with. I agree. I mean, I, it was such a useful degree. And even, you know, all the hype with behavioral economics now, like those are actually psychologists, you know, doing behavioral economics, which I think people forget sometimes. They're not necessarily or rarely are trained economists. They're psychologists. You're so right. And even as I think about, you know, how we engage with like various marketing campaigns or advertising campaigns, the ultimate goal is for people to feel empowered, to have information and to be able to make healthy lifestyle choices, healthier lifestyle choices. You know, we always have choices and all choices are hard and you just, you, we can either lead people to help, you know, live their most fullest, best, most, you know, best feeling um, life or, or not. And, you know, my goal is like, here's what I know. Some of the life hacks that, that I have that we know work, that science shows works. Here's how we can help bring those, those tools, those self-care tools to more people. You know, I think at Lifeway, every time we help people choose to make a healthier choice, um, they are, you know, truly living um, a life that says, I'm worth those good choices. I am worthy of love. I am worthy of nutritious food. I'm worthy of moving my life, my body. I'm worthy of sun. You know, I'm worthy of, of and those are, those are all self-care mm -hmm. choices that say, I choose myself. And, you know, I always say you have to put your own oxygen mask on before you can put anyone else's on. So that's kind of, it frames up a lot of what we do at Lifeway. Yeah. And I definitely want to get to that and I want to get to some of your great life hacks. But let's just share for our audience a little bit more of your journey because few lives are predictable or linear, uh, especially yours. <laughs> so if you can just share you know, what happened between the time that you were working as a crisis counselor to then becoming the youngest female CEO of a publicly held firm. Sure. Well, to tell that story, I'll, I'll backtrack just a little to give you just a little bit more context. Um, so my family and I were refugees from the former Soviet Union, and we settled in Chicago in 1976 when I was just one, uh, one-year-old baby. And we were the first of 48 families that were allowed to settle uh, from the Soviet Union when they first, the small slit through the Iron Curtain. And um my, my parents and I, we came with $116, no English language, no friends, no network, nothing. Um, the language resources here in the States were almost non-existent because we were the first families over. And, um, you know, my mom learned English watching General Hospital and they realized early on that while there was lots of food in the United States, the food was different than their Russian Slavic food. So she very, very early on saw this niche that she could fill and she opened up the first Russian deli in Chicago. 
that turned into like four or five delis, five delis in an importing and distributing business. That led them to a trade show in Germany where in 1985, my dad bought his the first three bottles of kefir or kefir that we drink um, that was a staple in the Soviet Union for 2000 years. The people, my ancestors consumed kefir or kefir as medicinal uh, for medicinal benefits. And, and it was loaded with all these folklores and stories around it. And science is now backing up what the folklore and the story said. But my dad hadn't had it in about 10, 10 years, 11 years until he went to Germany again after leaving. And uh, and so he, they, they decided six months later, they, they, were, they were going to start to make kefir in the States and they incorporated Lifeway in 1986, six months after that trip. No fancy business marketing plan, no fancy investors, just out of the basement in Skokie, making it themselves. They, they smuggled the kefir culture. They got it from my grandmother and uh, she mailed it in a, in a package. And so this culture we've been replicating over and over. And um, I was 11 when they started the business. And I, again, thought I was going to go into psychology. I, I was doing my thing. My dad was growing Lifeway. Um, and he took it public in 88. The So much media around this Russian immigrant who had this American dream. And Gorbachev was meeting with Reagan at the time. So there's a lot of interest in this story. Um, Reagan actually took a a case of our kefir to meet with Gorbachev during the peace talks and talked about my family and my, my father. And so, yeah, it's really, really cool. But, um, you know, so the the business was growing and I started, uh, to, when I was in psychology, I, I just decided I pivoted and I, I had an epiphany that I can do what I wanted to do with which was to help improve people's lives, help reduce suffering, change the world, as cliche as that sounds, that I can do that through a for-profit entity. And what better than helping my dad? And I just saw everything that he was talking about with Lifeway and all the benefits that could be had from drinking kefir. And I thought, this is this is actually the path. This is the key right here is let's help grow this. And uh, I worked with him side by side for five years. And when I was 27, he suddenly, uh, he had a sudden heart attack and died. And the next day I became CEO. And so that's how I became, you know, the the youngest uh, female of a publicly held company, basically. (laughs) And I've been running it, you know, since, since since 2002. And, um, you know, we've taken it from a small $12 million business, which at the time was, I felt very big, you know, $12 million was not a mom and pop, mm-hmm. um, but it's not anywhere where we are today. We're um, about 120 million now in sales. We're sold in Mexico, in the Caribbean, in the UK, in parts of Asia, Um and it's really exciting. It's really awesome to see what we've built. We've gone from 70 employees to over to about 300 now. So yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, that's incredible. So what were some of the pivotal decisions you made as CEO to, to get from the 12 million to 120 million? Um, label changes was one big thing, you know, changing the label, 
uh, for us, it's really important. It's, uh, it's like our, it's our advertising. It's what we can get people. There's, you know, a hundred thousand products on a, in a grocery store, um, you know, trying to get somebody to pay attention to your brand on a store shelf is not easy. Um, so, you know, one thing was changing labels and that's an ongoing process. Like we, we still change labels. We're still trying to update them, you know, call out things that are on trend, whatever. So that was one big thing. Um, right. That, that was like an instant change, uh, that, that was very dramatic. I focused, I, you know, hired, um, a sales team and built out various teams. I think, being a part of networks like Executive Exchange or other networking groups where I was able to um, find mentors and role models. I didn't know how to be a CEO. I was 27 years old. You know, most of my peer group was 40 years older than me in some cases. Like I had to follow my gut and trust my gut and um, stand tall in what I knew my skill set was and wh- what I could bring to the table, um, which was a, his, you know, a legacy, a part of history, my intuition, my crisis management skills. Like I know that I lead well in a crisis um, and, uh, you know, lean into what I knew that I did well. And I also knew what I didn't do well and or what I didn't like to do or what I didn't have time to do. And I outsourced all of that. I delegated as much as I could around the things that I didn't want to do or did not have the skill set for. Um, so those were some really important things. You know, I read Tom Peters, Good to Great, that that stuck with me. Getting the right people on the bus, super important. Um and yes, uh, one of my mentors in Chicago, Robert Passon at Radio Flyer, probably a lot of people know Robert. Robert said to me early on, make a list of everything you do in the day. And then your goal is to try to cross as many of those things off and get, give it to somebody else to do. Move that to somebody else. And then find what you yourself, only you can do. What uniquely only you can do. And, um, and I just, I did that and, Mm -hmm. you know, I found my sweet spot. And so now it's just, I know, I know the cadence of, you know, the day and week and month and whatever. So yeah, those were some key things. And I think that's advice even for people who are just starting out on their career journey, right? That's not just CEO advice. I think, um, some of the best advice I got when I was starting out from my boss was you need to make yourself obsolete. So if you want to get promoted, you have to replace yourself. And I think that's scary for people, right? Right. Um, especially early on, like, well, if this person knows how to do my job as well as I do, then, you know, they're going to take my job. What am I going to do? And instead of that mindset of, please take my job, I would love for you to take my job because then that means I can go do something else, right? Um, but it can be tricky for some people to get there in that mindset. I agree. Yeah. Well, you know, I had this real laser sharp focus that I wanted to grow. So, you know, I knew that the only way I could continue to grow is if I brought others in to the, the, the play tent and they could also be a part mm-hmm. of it. So, you know, I think everyone's tired of talking about COVID, but we do need to talk about it a little bit because it's still quite relevant. And so, you know, are there any ways that COVID really impacted your business? 
yes, uh, COVID was a real uh, game changer for us. But what, what it really did was bring up to the surface what we are here for. It brought to the surface what our purpose is and um, our mission. And that is to leave the world a better place, to improve the lives of our community and our customers. And, um, you know, this, uh, we were part of the essential workforce. We are part of the essential workforce of keeping the food supply strong and the, the nation's food uh, system strong. So, you know, very early on, it was up to us to make sure that our supply chain was strong and healthy, that we had, um, you know, various procedures in place to make sure that our milk was coming in, that our packaging was coming in, um, you know, so, so making sure that we were able to secure a supply chain um, and then making sure that our workforce felt that they were being protected for and cared for. That was number one. Very early on, I had this sense that, you know, we need to be wearing masks before the CDC ever came out and said, you need to wear masks by mid March, we were already securing masks for our workforce. Um, this was a really important thing, both because they saw that I cared that it was important. This was number one priority for me was to get them uh, PPE, but also it was important because it's, it could have saved lives. You know, I don't know what would have happened had we not done that, but I know that we did early on and it very well could have saved lives. So I'm very proud of that and, and that we took those steps again in the dark without any guidance or leadership from any official government entity to tell us, here's what you have to do. You know, nobody was in there saying like, oh yeah, Lifeway's responsible for millions of bottles of, of product. And how can we make sure that they're going to, you know, operate at the best way so that they're not going to, you know, die uh, while still keeping food on the shelves. And nobody said, you know, it was, we were completely in the dark. Um, so it was completely using intuition and gut and finding what we could find in different little, you know, chat rooms about this virus and making decisions that maybe could have sounded crazy or maybe were exactly what we should have been doing and what guidance should have offered us back in January or even earlier. Um, so anyways, that, that was a big thing. And, you know, it was a really hard um, time when we were coming into the facility making food. I mean, I learned how to drive a forklift because I was afraid that my team was going to start, you know, getting sick and that, you know, we at least needed to make sure that we were able to ship product out. And so we spent all of March building out extra inventory, which was so important because for perishable foods, usually we only have about three days of inventory. That's between my uh, the manufacturers, distributors, retailers. Nobody keeps a big back stock, especially on perishable foods. And um, we decided to build out seven weeks of inventory in just a couple of days. That's like unheard of. We are running around the clock just to make sure that we can have inventory and just in the case that if we all started to get sick, that we could at least even call like the governor and ask for, you know, the National Reserve to come in and help us move finished goods out. So I had all these plans and, and ideas about like 
just in case, plan B, plan C, plan D, like lots of plans um, for lots of just in case scenarios. So, you know, that's, that's what we did. And, and then we also were making extra product because we knew that food pantries and food banks would be slammed. And, uh, you know, I know that, um, like 20% of the kids in the uh, school system in Chicago are food insecure. And uh, some kids are even homeless and they rely on that lunch meal for their one meal a day. And not being in school was could be disastrous for, for these kids and for families. So we knew that this was going to happen and this was happening, not just in one city, not just for a few weeks, but nationwide. So we started making extra product to um, move to food banks and food pantries and make donations. We've served over 250,000 servings of kefir through food banks nationwide um, and through hospital healthcare um, systems, making sure that nurses and doctors who were the most exposed to the virus were getting their immunity. Um, you know, one other thing that came out of COVID is how important our health is to our side. We just really now value our health. Um, I don't think anybody thought about their health. They just assumed that you'd wake up and you'd always have it. But now it's we're faced with the possibility that we might not have our health and our health is linked to each other. And we're only as strong, our communities are only as strong as we individually are. Um, and so we're all linked, both individually and the collective, to each other. And um, knowing the benefits of kefir and the research around uh, the benefits of the gut and, and how important gut health is to overall immunity and to mental health, I knew that it was so important to get kefir into the hands of as many doctors and nurses as possible and and just people in general and interestingly enough we've since that time there's been a lot of great research and science and studies around kefir and covid and uh you know the potential to help reduce its impact or even just be you know increase your immune system overall so it's great yeah Talk about leaning into your purpose during times of crisis. Oh. I mean, that's, you know, the standard textbook advice and some people struggle with how to do that, but, you know, you did that so well. Um, Thank you. And I think just everything you've talked about in terms of your empathy and care for your employees, I mean, that shines through in all of your leadership. So something I do want to touch on a bit, you know, you are a huge proponent of the importance of self-care, right? Caring for yourself and loving yourself and putting your oxygen mask on first. And we know it's more critical today than ever, right? Open a newspaper, click on a news site. Everyone is talking about the tremendous burnout and stress that is facing employees and even CEOs this past year, particularly working parents, essential workers, anyone whose business has taken a hit. So you know these things intuitively, but what would you share with why employers need to be invested in the emotional and mental well-being of their employees? Why is this good for business? Well, if you have a happy team, a happy workforce, then they're going to be able to do good work. You know, they're they're they'll they'll be able to contribute. Um, if you have a workforce that is burned out. Uh, depressed, anxious, stressed, that's not helpful to anybody. That is not going to be helpful to anybody. That's for sure. Um, 
it, you know, having the ability to be vulnerable yourself and be a leader and model what self-care looks like is to me a really important thing for all leadership to be doing. You know, the crisis, this crisis has um, brought mental health to the surface. It was already a bubbling conversation that we were having, but this really um, even speed tracked that conversation. And I think that the conversation around mental health is is only in its infancy and it's only going to become bigger. Um, we are going to start to treat mental health the same way that we do um, like, you know, blood pressure, or heart disease or cancers. We're going to start talking about mental health a lot more. Um, and our uh, workforce, our, our employers, the employers, who have the capacity, this, this is going to be a big component of work life, uh, I think, going forward. And, and this time is like a portal. It's, it's an opportunity to do things a little bit different. And, uh, you know, we do things like, you know, it sounds like it's um, not that big of a deal, but letting people know that they can go take a yoga class, that they can sit and do mindful breathing or meditation work for um, some time to relieve some of that stress. It's small little shifts in mindset that make big, big overall uh, shifts in life. Uh, so, so we were doing live yoga classes before we shifted those almost immediately to online through like Instagram live. We partner with best in class, uh, wellness experts. We host, uh, wellness chats with therapists. So, you know, one thing we've noticed is that therapists are now reporting, they have wait lists of five plus deep, and they're saying that's never happened to have such a long wait list. Um, and so the, there's not enough professionals and therapists even to handle um, what's going on right now and how many people are waiting for services. Uh, so we need to be able to open up at least some tools to people right now. So, so we offer these mental health chats to help destigmatize and de demystify what that looks like for people um, and, and re re take away the taboo that's often associated with some of these life change, life saving tools, you know, having access to therapy and having someone talking about therapy um, is important and modeling that. Um, it, it could really be the difference between somebody being alive and somebody harming themselves and, and even worse. Um, and, and just to reduce suffering, you know, to help people move through their day with ease. Um, you know, the abuse that we're seeing is skyrocketing. You know, people are potentially locked in homes with abusers. Um, I actually participated in a PTSA for RAIN, which is the Rape and uh, Incest uh, Hotline National Network. Um, so we did a, a PSA with Google and, you know, I contrib contributed some content for that um, to help share the hotline numbers. But we're seeing calls up you know, 80% to some of the domestic violence and rape hotlines. Um, we know that alcohol uh, addiction is through the roof. Um, violence against women, again, you know, just through the roof. Um, eating disorders, it's National Eating Disorder Awareness Week. Um, the eating disorder hotlines are up 80%. Um, people kind of uncertain about their food and their routine and what's going on there. So so we know that like there is a big epidemic and, and the trauma that that we experienced. It's a collective global trauma. It, this 
COVID didn't, um, it, it, it touched everybody. There's no one that's been untouched in some capacity, no matter if you're, you know, like to your point, a CEO or a celebrity or essential worker, it touched everybody in one way or another. We have grieving people who've lost lives and family members. We have, you know, the workforce, like you said, that's dismantled or, you know, businesses that are shuttered. So, so, you know, this, this has long lasting trauma and, um, you know, we can also heal. We also know that we can heal from these things, that we we can p- build tools to restore wholeness and to um, offer comfort to people and offer them a chance to just sit with their, um, to just sit with their, their pain and their trauma and, uh, and take a breath. And sometimes just letting people know that they can just sit and take a breath and get grounded in in themselves um, is enough to just carry them through the next few minutes, the next few hours, the next day, and just repeatedly going through that process of uh, finding where you can get some joy or look forward to something, you know, um, whether it's an online, you know, little concert or whatever it is, just offering people a place to look forward to, um, spending time working through a recipe, you know, it's, it's really great. I I don't love cooking. I do love cooking when it's for fun, but um, you know, when, when you're working through a recipe, you can really get lost in the recipe and you can make it an experience. You can put music on, you can put lighting, you know, you can really make, take control of your space. And, and all of these things are small tools that we can help bring to more people. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor, Sure. Audio equipment for the Executives Exchange podcast is provided by Sure Incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. For nearly 100 years, performers and world leaders have depended on Sure microphones. Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, Sure lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. There are a few things you said that I think are really important to emphasize again, you know, just first the modeling from the top, right? I think that's a big part of it that for them to see in their own leadership, vulnerability, you know, transparency, a recognition that I'm struggling, this is hard. Cause I think a lot of times, you know, we can ask people, how are you doing? And they'll say, I'm fine, you know, and you have to really dig deep, like, no, really, how are you doing? And, and a lot of times it takes sharing, like, I'm not doing okay. How are you doing? And suddenly there's this permission to express how they're, they're actually doing. And the other thing you talked about that I personally have even struggled with, I can say for my own staff, what I've struggled with is there's not a one size fits all solution, Right. So I feel like everyone's situation is so unique right now. Like what they're dealing with is a whole gamut of things, right? They could be grieving, you know, the death of a loved one. They could be struggling with um, parenting children at home. They could be in an unsafe environment and a lot of domestic tension at home. Um, They can be depressed, isolated. I mean, the list of things goes on and on. Um, or they just can't figure out how to leave work at work and, you know, and they're working 12 hour days, all of these things. And so there doesn't really seem to be like 
an overall wellness program to help everyone right now. And so then what ends up happening is we do nothing, right? Um, And so instead, like trying to figure out what is that menu of options that we can make available for our staff? Um, Is it PTO, wellness days, you know, yoga classes, meditation, building in breaks, emotional resilience um, training, like access to counselors? I mean, it's a whole lot of stuff, diet, nutrition. I mean, you talked about so many things. Um, and so I think that's so important for people to remember. This is, this is not a, oh, okay, yes, there's a program for that. You know? Yeah. And by the way, this is a lifelong journey. This is a lifelong process. This isn't just, oh, we're doing this because it's COVID and people are stressed. This is a lifelong, um, you know, place that we, it's, it's like a masterpiece that you're always working on and building things in and, you know, finding what works today isn't maybe going to work tomorrow or just whatever, but you're totally right. What, you know, maybe like my single millennial teams need has, is totally different than what my, you know, more senior multi kid household needs, uh, or a single family or, you know, like there's just, everybody is needing something else. Like, yeah, my, my folks with families might need more time to be downtime. And my single folks who feel so isolated and alone might need to find places to build into more community. So it is really all across the board, um, customization and finding out what works for the team members. But what you'll find is that they are so appreciative. They, they want to be seen. They want to be heard. They want to know that somebody is thinking about them, has their interests, you know, there, um, and, um, putting them first. And, you know, they, the, the response is that they, they love you. They're loyal. They don't leave. They don't want to leave. Uh, you know, I think the culture at Lifeway is one of, um, it's an eclectic culture and it's very family oriented and, uh, it feels like it's our family. So, you know, what would you do for your family? You would try to give them, you know, the best that you can give them. And, um, help reduce any suffering when you see pain. I think something else that not everyone is talking about, but it is starting to get more press is CEO burnout. You know, that CEOs right now are stressed in unprecedented ways. Um, And, you know, it used to be a lot about, oh, employees and staff. And I think now there's this recognition that actually um, CEOs have tremendous stress right now and are, a lot of them are struggling. So what do you do personally to make your life easier as a CEO and just anything you have to share with your fellow CEOs that are listening? Well, yeah, I've definitely battled um, and confronted many of my own demons and darkness and tremendous pain. And, you know, again, it's a lifelong journey, but um, I've definitely come out of some really, really nervous, dangerous places where, you know, the closest people around me were concerned. And I'm grateful that I have, uh, you know, support around me like that. Um, because then I can go do what I need to do to, you know, be strong for my team. You know, it's kind of works like that. Um, so I, I have a very strong community of people who love me and are willing to challenge me when they see that I am, you know, having negative mindset or, catastrophizing mindset, which can happen. And especially, you know, as potentially like business Mm -hmm. declining, like we've seen now, um, 
luckily my business is up. So I'm not working, having to navigate a decline, but I have, I have worked through that. Um, and it's really scary and, um, frightening to, to lead through that. Um, but yeah, so having community, you know, I have my therapist who I lean on. I am 100% have to work out, um, every day, or maybe I'll take a break and it would be, you know, a, a day or two, but it would be a softer workout. Maybe it's just a walk, but I have to move my body. This is a non-negotiable. If I don't get some sort of sweat on at least 20 minutes, but hopefully 45, um, I just can't get, it's, just, I'm not in a good place. And we know that there's science. I'm not crazy when I say it. We know that the science shows that when you start to get, you know, move your body, your dopamine rises, your endorphins start to get activated and um, your serotonin is up. And serotonin is originates, most of your serotonin, 90% comes from your gut. Um, you know, making sure you eat nourishing foods. You know, for me, the first thing is like, oh, I'm going to skip a meal. I don't have time and work through lunch, um, making sure that I can have those snacks because, you know, hangry, getting hangry is a thing. So reducing those times these are the things that we can control, right? There's a lot of things we can't control, but what can we control? So I try to think about that. Um, getting outside into nature. I think we've all seen how important nature has become for us during COVID. It's, you know, what, what's safe is to be outside, which is perfect because nature has healing qualities. In Japan, they do nature bathing for five minutes. It's, you don't sit, you don't work, you, you just sit in the, in the, um, in nature, like by trees, listen to the birds. And it has such a great healing quality, but you become one with it. And you see that, you know, the world is bigger than your, your, crisis. Um, and that helps. And, um, those are some of the big ones, you know, meditation. I continue to feel really, really, um, excited about the science around meditation, taking five minutes to just breathe, uh, really mindful breathing has helped me find some of the best ideas that I, um, that I have had. Um, so those are all important things and reading. I love reading. I think it's so much joy from reading and I would even say, um, fiction. I know a lot of us probably are reading, trying to get great, you know, smart content with nonfiction and all of that. But there's such great science around how reading fiction is a great um, way to improve your mental health too. So don't feel guilty about that. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, those right. are the big ones. We all need fantasy in our life, right? Exactly. Escape. Fantasy and play and escapism. I mean, these things that we that children do so well, and then we just lose as we become yeah. adults, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, some of these things that we know are good for us. So I do want to talk about Chicago a little bit because this is the Executives Club of Chicago, and I know Lifeway is an international brand, and you have kept your headquarters in the Chicagoland area, even as you've grown and expanded internationally. So from your perspective as someone who's really grown this business here, what do you think makes Chicago great? 
for business? How has it served you well as a business partner through this? And then we'll also talk about what it could be doing better. Um, Chicago is amazing. You know, Chicago opened its arms up to our immigrant family and, um, you know, gave us a soft landing place um, in 1976. So Chicago was part of our bones. Um, Chicago builds some really strong, resilient people. You know, the city of broad, the city of broad shoulders has some pretty terrific broads. And while I know this is not a women's organization, I will say that (laughs) Chicago has um, amazing, strong broads, you know, strong women, um, which, which uh, I think being in the center of the country, you know, we are so grounded um, and, and, uh, and resilient, you know, when you get through Chicago winters, you know how strong you are. And anyone who uh, has grown up in Chicago is, is a strong person. And then I don't know, I follow, there's a, a guy, Wim Hof. He's uh, the Iceman. Some people might have seen like documentaries. He's a viral for, uh, guy, but he he talks about how taking an ice bath can build resilience. He started doing this for his wife who attempted suicide and found that she had a reduction in her mental suffering when she was exposed to these flashes of cold water, you know, ice baths. And I practiced with him and there's a part of breathing that goes into it. And then you flash. And and when you're in that moment of this ice water and your, your whole body kind of goes into shock, you forget about the thing that's making you, you know, stressed or, you know, giving you suffering. And I think that that's one reason why Chicago has such strong, resilient people. You know, the other thing is the eclectic workforce, being a city that is like a sanctuary city that is, um, uh, you know, opens its doors to people that from all different backgrounds, from all different countries, um, that the, the most strongest teams we know are eclectic teams, um, teams that look like our communities, you know, teams that mirror um, what, what our neighborhoods look like. And Chicago is, is the, you know, epitome for this. It's the model example of a city that integrates and um, opens its arms to people that are different. Um, and so I think I'm, I'm very, very proud to be from a city that uh, is so welcoming and open to anybody who wants to make it their home or who's passing through. Um, Chicagoans are awesome. And, you know, the city has its challenges, especially now with COVID, as a lot of large cities do. Um, What would you like to see it do more of, do differently to really help support this economic recovery? Well, I think, you know, we are kind of the food capital in the of the world, I think. Um, we have some of the best food places. And I think our food uh, restaurants are... You know, we we became a food city, a food city, foodie city. Um, some of the best restaurants, best chefs come from Chicago, and that industry has been, of course, devastated. So, uh, you know, I I hope that we can continue to shine a light on the incredible um, chefs and restaurants and the food culture that we we have in our city. I'm confident it's going to come back. I'm not even worried because, again, Chicago is a resilient people. Um, 
And, um, and, you know, I think like live events and things that, that bring us together, it's something that's so important to our city. It's one of the best, our our cultural experiences, um, are, are really, really important. And, you know, like you said, as soon as the weather gets a little bit nice, we're there. It's 40 degrees and we're, we have our shorts on and we're ready to go, uh, celebrate that. So, yeah, I think I think that that will happen, and I I do think you know it's it's just a matter of time and having um, the vaccines get to as many arms as possible, and having that equitable vaccine distribution is kind of a key to making that happen. So um, I think we're probably doing a great job. I mean, again, there is no playbook for this. We've never had to go through this, and. Um, you know, because of the early leadership in this crisis, it was, uh, you know, challenging for cities. And, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I don't want to be Lori Lightfoot right now. I don't want to be any mayor or governor in any city right now, because it's very challenging. It is so tough. It is so tough. And, you know, I would just say that any of us in positions where we could help and, you know, bring any sort of I don't know, collaborations, I know that we certainly will, we'll be, we, we have and will continue to reach out to city and state officials, both locally and nationally, to lend our hand wherever we can. But I think it's going to be up to all of us. You know, I don't think it's like, hey, help, hey, government, fix all of this. It's like we all have something to bring to the table to help restore our, our world. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, it really is an all hands on deck moment. You cannot expect, you know, one, you know, leadership in a government office to be solving this. And this is just a massive crisis on such a scale. And like someone said to me once, you've been through one pandemic, you've been through one pandemic. Like this is not to your point, there, there is no playbook for this. It's not like we can, there are no models, there's no AI, you know, there's no data to be predicting any of this. Um, so I want to talk about some of your leadership habits. So first, though, just as a person, I always love asking this. What is something not mm-hmm. everyone knows about you? Um, oh, my gosh. I don't even know. I'm such an open book. Um, I lo- well, I love leftovers. I am like the leftover police. I don't let anyone throw away the leftovers because I will eat it. <laughs> I I love taking home leftovers. Um, I do too. My my kids make fun of me because I talk to like strangers. Like I give way too much information. I'm I don't know. I think it's because I spent you know a lot of years kind of traveling a lot and you know ending up in Ubers and hotel rooms and stuff. And it's lonely. And so I just started talking to the Uber drivers and, you know, hotel staff and whatnot. And like, as if they were like my best friends and my kids always get super embarrassed about it. They're like, they don't need to know what you're going to do with your leftovers and when you're going to eat them between your class or this. Or this. So they, they are always like, you know, facepalm mom. <laughs> yeah. I love them too. Like the the flavors when they like kind of settle in there after a day or two, like everything tastes so much better heated over. And my better. husband does not like leftovers. It's a fight in our house too. He's yes. like, why do you want to keep eating this stuff again and again? I remember growing up, like one night a week would just be leftover night where my mom would just like pull everything out of the fridge and it was just this hodgepodge of 
totally random stuff that didn't necessarily go together. That was always my favorite dinner night. It was like, yes, you know, we can have all like these little leftover things. It was so fun. Um, I know you have a lot of great life hacks. I wish we could talk about all of them. We'd probably need a whole session just to get through them all. But sort of what are your, what's your one or your two, your best life life hacks, the things you do to make your life easier? Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, I follow my gut all the time uh, that I never serves, you know, serves me wrong. It always is right. Um, that's one thing is just getting confident in that decision-making um, process. Um I've been a, come a big fan of this ice water thing. I've been trying to do like an ice plunge type thing once a day, or at least a cold shower. Um, that that seems to have it, it, it's very um, invigorating. I've been loving it. Taking um, time to just write. I've been spending time writing during lockdown, and that's really nice. I try to get, you know, 400 words to 700, sometimes more, depending on time, but trying to write every day has been really fulfilling and has been bringing me joy. Mm -hmm. Are you journaling or are you writing fiction? I'm actually, I'm actually writing a book. Um, That's great. I've been, uh, yeah, I, I wrote, I already wrote my first book, I wrote the Kiefer cookbook, which actually the reader, the Chicago reader said that it was like a love letter to Chicago. Um, so if anyone wants to read some more of that, there's a lot of great stories in there about, you know, growing up in Chicago and watching my parents build their businesses um, and probably some faces and names you'll recognize, like the uh, Kamahachi owner. Um, my, my father and her had a nice relationship and I tell a story and, and created a recipe in honor of that. But um, so so I've written one book. I know the process to some extent. And uh, I started working on an outline last year to um, get the second book. And uh, that's that's been really, really fun and daunting because I realize I have so much content. That's what that's what I'm realizing. I have probably enough content for uh, a, a trilogy and a mini series, <laughs> a lot of lessons, a lot of experiences, um, you know, some good, some bad, but ultimately, you know, what I learned is that, um, again, you can restore wholeness and you can go through really challenging things. You can face darkness with light and with ease. And that's kind of the overall piece, but I, I really want younger people, kids to hopefully hear my story and know that they can keep going and that they, um, they, they have the capacity and enough people, if you reach out, it's unbelievable how many people will help. I look forward to reading it. I hope you finish it soon. <laughs> One of the gifts of um, COVID and lockdown, right? More time for things like that. So you're a person who has been at the forefront of so many things. What are one or two things that you see on the horizon that you're most intrigued by, most interested in following? Well, I don't know if uh, this group has jumped in on Clubhouse yet, but I have recently joined Clubhouse. I've been on for like two months. I am fascinated with Clubhouse. 
Um, I think that is a very exciting platform and an opportunity for all of us to network and feel part of community. You know, it's the story is fascinating and how it, you know, kind of originated around COVID. Um, being able to network and kind of create conferences, but, you know, all audio, taking out the, the, um, the stress of, of video, you know, it's very liberating to just be audio only and to be able to drop in and out without a schedule per se and jump into rooms and whatever you're interested in listening to or talking about, we're empowered that that technology exists, that we can do it. Um, I have learned so many things since I joined Clubhouse. I have jumped in on conversations with Adam Grant and Malcolm Gladwell, who I love both of their work. You know, I read The Tipping Point when I was in college um, or right after college. It actually gave me the blueprint for Lifeway and like how I was going to go to market and understanding the power of influencers and who's, you know, how we can get trends to happen. Like The Tipping Point was a book that I read that Lifeway would not be where it is today if I hadn't read it. So, you know, being able to listen Listen to, to that conversation like a fly on the wall or yesterday, this is probably going to come out later on, but yesterday I listened to Bill Gates on, on Clubhouse. Holy cow, that was a great conversation. There were 8,000 people in that room and then it was overflow into, I don't know, hundreds of other rooms with thousands of people listening to. So, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's really a fun app to get into. If you miss going to conferences, if you like podcasts, concerts, you know, live meditation, it's, it's everything there. Um, so I'm, I'm fascinated with that app and I, I think it's transformative and revolutionary. I was in a, a room where I was the speaker. We had 1600 people in that room for four hours. We talked 1600 people that would take me like three days to do that type of conference if I had to like go to New York and you know it's it's just it's mind-blowing and I'm fascinated with it I think you know you are one of the shining examples of using your power to do good you've done a lot in that regard what are some of the things that you're most proud of oh I love that question well, I um, decided to start to use some of my resources and my platform to speak to, to contribute to the conversation around violence against women. That's really important to me. Um, I'm a survivor myself, and uh, I've spent 30 years working in the area of trying to end violence against women. Um, I actually helped write the first teen dating violence curriculum for YWCA when I was a teen. Um, and that I went in and then helped teach that curriculum to other teens. And that curriculum has been taught to hundreds and thousands of kids across the city. So I'm super proud of that. You know, I was a, a rape crisis counselor um, for our rape victim advocates, which is now resilience. Um, so I've, you know, spent spent a lot of time working in the space. And then a few years ago, I became an executive producer on a number of documentaries. Um, most noteworthy was The Hunting Ground, um, which was Oscar nominated and Emmy winning. And actually Gaga won uh, an Emmy for, um, or Gaga and Diane Warren wrote, won an Emmy for the music that they contributed. But I was able to, was invited to share the stage for the Oscars performance of the song Till It Happens to You, which was featured in the film. And um, 
kind of came out as a survivor myself at that time, and it was 2016. Um, and then also recently on the record, which is a film, it was the Russell Simmons survivors and giving voice to to them. Um, it stands at the intersection of Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement, and it really. Um, gives voice to women of color who've mostly felt excluded both from the conversation around feminism, but especially around Me Too. You know, Black women, when they report their abuse, they have even significantly more greater challenges, um, more disbelief, and, and a whole number of other issues that come to the surface. So really highlighting um, their voices and giving them space. Um, so yeah, I mean, and, and then I also started an organization called Test 400K, and we aim to um, end the backlog of untested rape kits. And there's over 400,000 untested rape kits, which were discovered by Human Rights Watch uh, a number of years ago. So we brought national attention to this. We um, sent, uh, overnighted an unused rape kit to every governor in the country and ask them to sign a call to action, which would include them um, expediting expediting uh, rape kit testing, um, created a victim notification system, um, which Illinois Governor Pritzker just brought live, uh, this notification system, which is going to be huge for empowering survivors to advocate on their own behalf. Um, and gives transparency to the whole system and process. So, you know, I mean, I when I had my daughters, I uh, my I have a 12-year-old and a 10-year-old now. And when I was in the hospital delivering them, I promised them that I would do everything in my power to improve the world for them, to make the world safer for them, to offer resources if uh, some kind of, you know, tragedy like this ever touches them or their friends, that there's resources built in and they know that they have support and they have vocabulary to move through this process and, you know, recover if that's the, 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 the what the situation is, or, or just to prevent it. I mean, the goal is to prevent violence against women uh, for me. And um, yeah, so, you know, I will spend the rest of my life and even after I'm long gone, um, working sure to make sure that, um, you know, this is uh, an issue that will eventually be eradicated. And that means changing culture. That means having hard taboo conversations. That means teaching kids about consent. That means um, teaching kids about boundaries, about safe, you know, being feeling safe in their bodies, knowing what that looks like. Um creating accountability um, and systems of accountability when perpetrators, um, you know, basically have acts of violence or crime. So, you know, all of these things have to happen, but it's um, a big lift. But I have to say that spending 30 years working on it and then watching the Me Too movement happen overnight was one of the most fulfilling things I could ever experience in my life. And I am so proud that I've spent my time on this earth um, pushing against this, creating, working on laws, policy, activism, awareness that has contributed to some part of this, a mosaic, a couple of mosaics, uh, a couple of tiles on this mosaic. Um, so to know that I was part of that, and especially at a time when no one was talking about it, you know, now it's me too. And we all, this, we've, we've, 
started to have this conversation, but you know, I was having this conversation when I was 14. So 15, 16, you know, all these years. Um, and I, and again, I thought I have made it to some level. I survived, I've made it, I'm, you know, thriving. I have an obligation to the rest of my sisters, to my daughters, to my friends, to my world to do something. Julie, this has been such a pleasure. I have three big takeaways from our conversation that I'll quickly summarize. So trust your gut and drink kefir to ensure you have good gut health, gut health so you know what you're trusting, right? So your gut is speaking to you well. Put your max oxygen mask on first. And then what is your tile in the mosaic, right? What can you uniquely be doing to either make the world better, make the people around you better. It could be big, it could be small, but there's something that's unique to each of us and, and do that. Great advice for everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you for all that you've been doing. Um, it's been just such a pleasure. You are a, a treasure to Chicago and to everything that you've been doing. And thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And it's so awesome to get to talk to organizations that are in my hometown and, um, you know, just to shine a light on all you guys are doing and all the work you do to bring people together, to create networking opportunities for people to grow and thrive and, you know, offer these, these um, resources. And, you know, th this is the best part of Chicago is what you guys do. So thank you. I mean, it really is a special city. I mean, I think something like the Executives Club, which has been around since 1911 and is this incredible like convener and nexus and hub, it doesn't exist in other cities. Like we've had members move to LA and call us and say, can you start an Executives Club here? Like I really miss it. And there's just something, I mean, you spoke to it already before, but just this, like the civic engagement, the collaboration, the, the digging in, I mean, there is something very special about it that's tough to, to reproduce. I totally agree. And, and I just hope we can continue to bring in more people into that tent and that look different than us and sound different than us, but have a wealth of experience and knowledge and, you know, their own um, life journeys that they can share and help us become better. That's all for today's episode of the Executives Exchange, sponsored by Shure Incorporated. Thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at executivesclub.org. The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. Audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Shure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, produced by Eva Pinar. Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at Exec Club and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web at executivesclub.org.